Once upon the 1990s, there was a boy who grew up in the backwoods of North Carolina. We'll call him John. Now, as I was writing this, and as I was about to, well, as I was about to come up this morning, I realized that that could be confusing. I'm not talking about, or in any way, making a reference to our rector, John Yates. So just to clear that up. The Christian communities in these parts, in the backwoods of North Carolina, were characterized by a can-do attitude, a genuine care for each other, as well as authoritarian leaders, particularly within the church, and rigid rules, and an instinctual resentment towards what they viewed as the intellectual elites. His mother taught children Sunday school and vacation Bible school and made sure young Johnny always was at her side at church. Her faith was simple, yet deep. John's dad, well, he was another story. John's father was an enlightenment man. For him, the whole Christianity thing was a leftover myth from the past, wish fulfillment, that was a holdover from an age of ignorance. While John dutifully went along with his mom to church, his dad's skeptical misgivings about religion would not be lost on him. Even as a child, he could see the possibility of maybe growing up and staying at home with dad. His father would eventually scrape up enough money to get Johnny out of the parochial town, the Bible Belt, and send John to a premier boarding school up north. Away at prep school, John entered an elite culture, which may as well have been a different planet from the one he once inhabited back home. Upscale frat parties, yes, but also philosophy seminars and professors who lived and breathed refined cultural, cultured sentiments. John had been told by his mother to be suspicious of such elite outsiders. He somehow expected them to have horns and pitchforks, but instead most of them seemed actually kind of normal, smart, even quite charming. And at the same time, this kind of distance from his home, from his childhood home, allowed him to see what at least what he perceived it was the reality behind the kind of rule-driven morality of his religious community. He saw it ruled by leaders who, like the Pharisees, washed the outside but inside were driven by power, greed, and resentment. It's at this point his doubts about Christianity began to become a major problem. It wasn't simply that the truth claims of Christianity began to seem wrong, but the Christian moral vision of the world no longer attracted him. Christianity seemed irrelevant and even quaint. John was coming of age, at least so he thought, and so he came to believe that he had no other choice. So he walked away from the faith. John is a character I'm wagering some of you might just resonate with this morning. Maybe John reminds you of a son or a daughter who's walked away from the faith. Or maybe John reminds you of a coworker you've been trying to share with who grew up in a Christian home, but
but now thinks Christians are just a voting block. Or, or, or maybe John's story brings to mind some of your own misgivings about the faith. Of course, John's story is set in the Bible Belt in the 1990s, a place and time that was easier to stay in a Christian bubble. But John was an exception because he couldn't stay walled in. His dad was a skeptic. At school, he was exposed to these different competing uh, views of the world. And the further he was embedded in a culture that felt it had progressed beyond Christianity, the more Christianity felt far-fetched. But now, for us today, as we fast forward to the 2020s, such doubt can't be so easily roped off and limited to those who have an atheist parent or an elite secular education. With the internet, with the growing access to a diversity of perspectives that we can't escape, to the public criticisms of the Bible and Christianity from multiple directions, it's difficult not to be thrown around by the crosswinds of doubt. Yet lest we think doubt is mainly a modern problem, Thomas reminds us that the struggle with unbelief is not a new thing. And in Thomas, we also get some good news. Doubt doesn't have to be the final word. Look with me at John 20, starting in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now Thomas was one of the twelve. We read that here, which means Among other things, Thomas was committed. Thomas had left everything to follow Jesus for the last three years. He had believed Jesus was the savior king who would pick up the mantle of King David and save God's people. And if we go back, even in in John 10, we hear Thomas is even ready to give his own life for the cause. Thomas is committed. But then... When Jesus allowed himself to be taken, when Jesus didn't even put up a fight. And then on that day when Jesus died on the cross, Thomas had to have believed he had been a fool. For as the philosopher Cicero wrote, the word cross was shameful to even utter in polite Roman society. A crucified king was oxymoronic. Thomas realized He had thrown away his reputation, his time, his money, and even put his life in grave danger. How could he have been so naive, so gullible, he must have thought. So when the disciples come in and say, Jesus is alive, Thomas says, not this time, fellas. No, not this time. I will not be had again. Thomas's doubt is rooted in a disillusionment. Today, there's a growing number of people online, in various different places, 
uh, in our communities, sharing their stories of a deep disappointment with Christianity. They describe how they grew up in a Christian home, but just now can no longer believe. What began as doubts and wounds festered and eventually grew into a pervasive cynicism. If you follow these stories, there's typically a combination of background factors mentioned. Emotionally oppressive church leaders and sometimes parents. An anti-intellectual community that ignores insights from non-Christians or other brands of Christianity. And an environment that fosters a kind of compulsive need for certainty on almost everything. And any kind of uncertainty is a sign of weakness at best and sin at worst. And often a version of the faith in which the primary use of Christianity is a means to certain other ends. Let me just pause and say, if you are beginning to waver in your commitment to Christ because of these factors, I just want to let you know you can and reject these things without rejecting Christ. Because some of his followers have taken a wrong turn doesn't mean that Jesus is the wrong way. But of course, that still doesn't necessarily deal with your doubts. So what do we do? Three things. Number one, find the right kind of Christ followers and keep coming around. If you're dealing with doubts, if you're, if you're working with someone who is dealing with profound doubt, encourage them to find the right kind of Christ followers and keep coming around. As the story begins, Jesus had come to the disciples, but we read here, Thomas wasn't with them. And later when Thomas hears the other disciples' testimony about what they saw, it wasn't enough for him. But then look down at verse 26. Eight days later, where is Thomas? He's back with the disciples. This means at least two things. One, they allowed him to hang around. They didn't write him off. They, they, they didn't agree with him on the most important thing in their lives. It was surely all they were talking about that week, but they didn't chase him away because of his doubts and his questions. Are we building communities like that? Second, this means Thomas hung around. He couldn't make himself believe, but he, he could put himself in a context that left him open to the possibility. If you're having trouble believing, the best way forward is to find people who believe in Jesus and in hum humility welcome you to the table to share your doubts and fears and your honest questions. So number one, if you're dealing with doubt, doubts, keep coming around. Number two, reconsider the reasons to believe the resurrection. The resurrection is the historical claim that Christianity rises or falls on. But Thomas, as we've seen, wasn't buying it, at least at first. In verse 26, we find out that Thomas had a, a week to process, to mull over the claims of his friends. He would have been turning over the memories of Jesus in his mind. 
He could have thought about the time when Jesus so strangely said the temple would be destroyed and then in three days he would raise it up again. And how he must have thought at the time along with everyone else, what in the world is Jesus talking about? But now the other disciples, as he's listening into them, keep talking about how, oh my goodness, Jesus was actually referring to himself and that he would rise again in three days. But Thomas, we can imagine, was mulling over this because they knew the temple represented God's presence on earth And that would mean Jesus was God's presence on earth. A week means he had a lot of time to think through all of this. A lot of time to listen to the disciples, reflect on what it all means. And then Jesus walks into the room and looks looks straight at Thomas and he says, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it on my, in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And then verse 28, Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Thomas had stayed in the community with all his doubts and disappointments. He had surely kept coming back to consider Jesus' life and he considered the evidence in front of his face and he found himself maybe even to his own surprise, believing once again. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, you have believed because you have seen me. Now another way to translate this is is just as a simple statement. You have believed because you have seen me. This is not so much a rebuke, but a statement that distinguished Thomas from the generation after this first generation of believers that would follow Jesus, as the next part of verse 29 says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus is not saying, Thomas, I've given you a reason to believe, but it would have just been better if you would have believed without reason. If you would have just, uh, if, you, if you would have just had blind faith, that would have been better. After all, look at the very next verses, verses 31 and, uh, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John, after all, is writing this testimony as an eyewitness to Jesus' life and resurrection so that we have reasons to believe. But why, you might ask, should we believe John's testimony and the testimony of the early church? Well, I'm limited on time this morning. (laughs) But I do have five quick reasons. One, the claim of the resurrection for one particular man in the the middle of human history would not have been a popular notion in the first century. It's not the sort of thing one would make up if trying to start a movement. Claudia made reference to this last week. Many Jews looked forward to a future bodily resurrection, yes. But they viewed this as a corporate resurrection of all the righteous rather than one particular person. The future resurrection was thought to occur alongside the renewal of the entire world. 
So claiming that the disciples made up the story of Jesus' resurrection does not sit well with the fact that people were not expecting this at all. It just wouldn't have been on their radar screen. We know from the historical record that Jesus was not the first would-be Messiah to garner a following before being executed. But only Jesus' followers claimed his resurrection. N.T. Wright puts it well when he says this, in not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. It involved human bodies. They would have... There would have been an empty tomb somewhere, a Jewish revolutionary whose leader had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest himself had two options, give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming the original leader was alive again was simply not an option. Unless, of course, they came to believe he actually was alive. Two, and I'm going to be quicker. Two, in each of the four Gospels, women are presented as the first eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus. At the time, women were not to believe to, give, to be able to give trustworthy testimony on important matters, which is why they couldn't testify in a court of law. It would have been counterintuitive to invent the story this way with the hope of it catching on. The best explanation for why in all the traditions that we have, that women are the first eyewitnesses, and this is an uncomfortable detail. The, the, the best explanation is this uncomfortable detail is there because it's simply the way it happened. Three, we have reports written about witnesses to the resurrection who were still alive in 1 Corinthians 15 as Paul is writing. Peter, James, and Paul, and at one time more than 500 people claimed to have seen the resurrected Jesus. That Paul publicly claimed publicly proclaims this in a letter that was circulated around a connect, with a connected church who talked to each other meant that, hey, you can talk to these witnesses. They're still alive. If he was lying, it could have been refuted. Number four, we have really strange witnesses. Not, not just strange in the sense that they would have chosen women to be the witnesses, but think about some of the other witnesses. James, Jesus' half-brother, who apparently, along with the rest of the family, thought Jesus had gone off the deep end during his ministry, but then later claims to have seen his resurrected brother, and then, along with his disciples, worships him. Or consider Paul as probably the most unlikely person to become a Christian, having spent his time persecuting the first disciples, but then claims to have had this encounter with the risen Lord and becomes a Christian and almost immediately has much more, difficult, more, much more difficulties in his life. Five, if the disciples fabricated such a claim, it would not have only taken mass coordination very quickly to promote a highly unpopular idea, the ability to convince people who were un, extremely unlikely converts but then they'd have to be willing to endure persecution and face the threat of death for something that they were in a position to know was false. Now those, that's an embarrassing, um, uh, that's, I, that's an embarrassing amount of, uh, of lack of detail there. And I can give you more uh, if you wanna grab me afterwards or I can recommend some books. 
I'm only gesturing towards some reasons. And I'm not suggesting that the resurrection is something you can prove like a math equation. That's simply not how history works. But what I am saying is Christianity is not asking you to turn off your brains. The claim of a resurrection is a historical claim, and there are good historical reasons for believing it. Part of dealing with doubt, it's not the only thing we need to do to deal with doubt, but part of dealing with doubt means looking into some of those reasons. But Jesus offers Thomas and us something more than historical evidence. Finally, number three, to deal with doubt, consider Jesus' promise of peace. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and says, peace be with you. Jesus didn't give up on Thomas. He didn't walk away shaking his head in disgust because he had been with Thomas so long and yet Thomas still had questions and doubts. No, Jesus instead seeks him out. Jesus has come for broken, doubting sinners. And for me, that's really good news. And Jesus promises us something that can't be found in this world. He promises us true peace. That word peace would have likely been echoing in Thomas's mind because in the final weeks of his life, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus had kept, he kept talking to the, his disciples about peace. With some of his final words to his disciples, he told them, I have said these things to you that, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Every human heart longs for peace. St. Augustine talks about how we even fight wars and have arguments in hopes of achieving peace. And in a market economy, many have discovered there's a whole lot of money in selling peace. Many have discovered that through vacations and offers of vacations, you can, be, you can make a lot of money by selling the prospect of peace and quiet. Through a new pharmaceutical, we, we promise peace through well-being. Through a financial plan, we are promised a peaceful retirement. While these can offer some temporary versions of peace, the reality of pain and suffering and death are never too far away in the distance. Always threatening to destroy the fleeting moments of peace we try to settle for. We try to tell ourselves it's enough. One of the most common attempts at comfort I hear from people when other people are going through hard times is something along the lines of just keep going. It's going to be okay. It'll get better. Hang in there. It will all turn out for the best. I just want to say that I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. But I think I'm, I find myself more sympathetic to the logic of the French atheist Albert Camus, who once said that while he shared the Christian revulsion to the sufferings of this world, he doesn't share the Christian hope. So the, the Camusian part of me, I guess, thinks, will it really get better? Why would you believe that? I mean, after all, have you looked around? Do you watch the news? How can we have such optimism? 
Is such optimism based on reality or is it just blind faith? In order to look at the miseries of the world and say everything's going to be okay, do you just have to stop thinking about the obvious inevitability of injustices and the coffin that awaits us all? So why do we as humans offer such reassurances? I want to suggest to you this morning it's because we deeply long for peace. We want to look forward and say it will be made right in the end. There will be peace. But reassuring each other that it's going to be okay according to Camus' logic is not offering peace. It's offering a delusion. Unless, unless we have some reason, some sign of grace, some, some, some sign of grace, some reason to hope. And every time I begin to walk towards Camus, I can't help but, but see, just, see Jesus walking into the room, giving Thomas, giving me, giving us the reason for peace. Because of the resurrection, we can actually say to those in Christ what everyone wants to hear, but we can say it with good reason. It is going to be okay. It will get better. It will turn out okay. The best is yet to come. In this world, there will be many tribulations, but Jesus has overcome this world. Because of the resurrection, we can not only say, peace be with you, we can have good reason to say it. And that is good news. Let's pray. Lord, we long for this peace. Lord, we confess our doubts and we pray asking for your grace to help us in our unbelief that as we struggle with faith, we would cast our eyes upon your son. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.